Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, you'll hear part two of my chat with flutist and educator Keith Underwood, who's on the faculty of Manus in NYU and a highly sought-after coach and problem-solver who's known for his unconventional and creative techniques to help flutists and other musicians unlock their potential. Last week, Keith talked about how much he's learned from observing other musicians and how by imitating others, whether they play our instrument or an entirely different one, we not only gain some pretty transformative insights, but this also changes the way we listen to others and ourselves as well. We got so engrossed in this topic that we didn't even get to the question of breathing, which is one of the things that Keith is most known for. So in this week's episode, we explore the subject of breathing, which I know flutists and other wind or brass players and singers will find intriguing, but, and I'm biased of course, but I do think it's an important subject and one that string, keyboard, and percussion players can gain something from as well. Before you continue with this episode though, I should warn you that he does a lot of gesturing and he demonstrates a lot of concepts on the flute, which don't come across very clearly when you can't see what he's doing with his hands or his arms. If at all possible, I'd highly, highly recommend stopping this audio and watching the video version of this episode instead. To access the video version, just open up a web browser and go to bulletproofmusician.com underwood. But of course, if you're presently on a run or driving a car, does not matter how flat or straight or empty the road in front of you looks right now, even though that little voice in your head may have considered it for a split second, safety obviously comes first. So just stick with the audio for now, and you can always take a quick look at the video later if need be. I wanted to ask about breathing. I also wanted to ask about things that you wish more foodists knew. And also maybe if there's time for it, you know, challenges of the flute that you wish more musicians in general were aware of. For instance, I probably should have realized this, but I didn't realize that different notes have different demands in terms of intonation. And there's all sorts of embouchure challenges that I didn't begin to even be able to imagine. And even this notion of how air is sound is produced with the flute. I just assumed you blow into the hole as hard as you can and, and stuff comes out. <laughs> and, you know, watching some of your videos 
help me understand that that's actually not the case. It's actually pretty fascinating what happens. And I don't know if we'll get to to those sorts of things, but mm. is breathing maybe a good place to start? Sure. So there's one thing that kind of made my ears perk up um, that you said earlier, something about how there's a problem if one is thinking of air as the solution to everything. And I wondered if yeah. if you could expand on that and and help me understand more what you might have meant by that. I think if there are flute players out there listening, I think one of the most cool things a flute player can do who plays a flute that has keys is try. I've learned so much by playing early flutes, like Baroque. I love Baroque flute to pieces. And I love the way people wrote about playing the flute in the 18th century, like quants and, you know, like 18th century musicians. There are several different how to play the flute books from from the 18th century. And an 18th century flute is kind of fantastic because in the Renaissance, flutes only had six finger holes. And in about 1690, somebody decided to add it one key to a flute because I think because they, I wish I had a Baroque flute here, but I basically a six hold flute plays like a major scale. And then if you're playing a minor melody, you kind of want to, you want a leading tone. So I think, I think people added a key just to get a leading tone for like, you know, minor key melody. I think they they just said, because you can sort of half hold that note, but, and then within 20 years or less, people discovered the addition of one key, probably to get that note. They worked out the fingerings that that addition of that one key suddenly allows you to play in every key. And so through the, through the 18th century, eventually they added other keys to correct certain notes. But basically, the addition of this one key in 1690 allowed you to play every single key. Some of the most complicated pieces for the flute that we still play, like the Bach B minor flute sonata and the Bach E minor flute sonata, those are pieces that were written, what, 1720? 1715 or something. So it's like 20 or 30 years after somebody added one key to the flute to get one note, people were writing in every key on the flute and they wrote some of the most complicated flute pieces ever. So like there's a kind of an interesting, I think with technique on instruments, there are innovations that instrument makers made, you know, like harpsichord, forte. There are mechanical innovations that people made in in instrument design. And then there are composers throughout music history that exploited these innovations. And they usually exploited the innovations within a few years. So like, here's like one of the most amazing flute pieces ever written, being written like 20 or 25 years after one key is added to a flute. And then through the 18th century, they Mozart into Haydn era, even into Beethoven, they still were playing a flute that had one key. And they changed the pitch level, climbed like early 18th century pitch was like 390, it was like a whole step low. And then over time, it sort of climbed up to sort of 440 area by the beginning of the 18th of the 19th century. 
but all this amazing music was written for these these instruments that were that were very simple and also the instrument the hole that you blow into on a flute has a certain dimension but the dimension of an 18th century flute like the hole that you blow into is like about a quarter of the size of this hole it's tiny i've had the privilege of playing real 18th century flutes a guy in new jersey has an amazing collection and i did a concert at the met museum a few years ago on flutes from his collection with like all these great flute players mainly flutes from the early 19th century and the 18th century and the 18th century flutes when you play an 18th century flute wow it's amazing and that tiny embouchure hole is like how can you project on this thing like did everybody just listen and more quiet settings but there is a way you can get those instruments to have a kind of beauty and depth to the sound blowing through a tiny overture. you can't blow a lot of air you have to you're using air to play but you have to get the instrument to vibrate and when the instrument vibrates and really produces it, what i think is its real sound it has a feeling like a sort of magic lantern feeling where the sound sounds like it feels like it's glowing from the inside you're using your air, but it feels like you're rubbing a wine glass with your finger. Then sounds being produced like that. And uh, probably the greatest Baroque flute player, uh, traverso player of the last 50 years is there are many terrific players now, but sort of the first great figure in traverso playing was Bart Koiken. I've taken a few lessons from him. He basically taught himself to play traverso, and he has many, many recordings out. Talman fantasies, boxing eyes, and things like that. And um, this whole issue of breathing is kind of interesting. And it's the whole issue of using air to play a wind instrument is, is really interesting also, which is he had a big change occur in his playing that helped him play Baroque flute when at his conservatory he was going to, I think he was studying in Holland and his teacher was the principal flute in the Concertgebouw Orchestra. And I guess his teacher was a big fan of like, air will solve all your problems. You know, like if you're not projecting, you're not blowing enough air, blow that air across that canal, you know, at that windmill. And he said a French flute player came to his conservatory, gave a class one day and felt like everybody was blowing their heads off to play the flute. And the guy said, your flute already has air in it. The air you blow at the flute or into the flute, the purpose of the air that you're blowing into the flute is to get the air that's already there to vibrate. Don't use your own air to replace the, the air that's in the flute. The air is already there. You just need to get the air to vibrate. And then Bart said that the sound was so different when he just thought of it that way. And then when he was playing early flutes, that's when the early flute came alive. So I think... Teaching on wind instruments goes through sorts of fads, like over the course of the 20th century, I think people associated big sound with the amount of air that you were blowing into the flute. People say, wow, what a big sound. That guy puts a lot of air through the horn. Really? I don't, I don't hear much of a sound. I'm putting a little, I don't hear anything. <laughs> so I think if you get a feeling for playing a flute that's different, the feeling is going to be that you are using air to produce the sound, 
but you're using air to cause the the air in the flute to vibrate. You're not just throwing air at the thing, just like you're not playing a violin by <clears throat> bare into the string, but at a certain point, you're going to choke the string by force. And so I think there's a huge amount you can learn with the flute. And then I learned about things from different teachers. One great teacher that I learned a lot from was a trumpet player who passed away recently, Jerry Callett. We had a whole theory about brass playing that was related to this. He felt that brass players took breaths that were too deep and threw too much air at their brass instruments, and they developed embouchure problems and things because they were over-breathing and over-blowing. And he felt that you need to get your lips to vibrate, but you don't do that by throwing a ton of air through them. And then I remember having a discussion with a great trumpet player who was a, who was a student of Jerry's. He said, I said, like, the more I hang out with Jerry, the more I feel like, are we playing wind instruments? I know like a trumpet is a wind instrument, a flute is a wind instrument, but if I do the right thing, I don't feel wind in the thing. I feel like, I feel like I'm manipulating air. I, I feel the air inside my body. I feel the air passing through my lips lively, but I don't feel quantity is quality necessarily. And I don't love the word support. I don't love the word blow more air. Jerry's favorite word was compression. And then the guy I was talking to said, yeah, I think we don't play wind instruments. We play compression instruments. It's the way you have a certain amount of air behind your lips or in your mouth and you compress that air. And that produces a small amount of air at high velocity. And then that excites the tube of the flute. And then you get this kind of a ring in the sound. But breathing factors into this in a kind of an interesting way, which is I don't feel like I'm breathing. I don't think there's a value in always taking gigantic breaths storing up air inside of my body. I think that if you want one breathing thing, if you put your fingers lightly underneath your collarbone and lightly breathe into this area and then play any wind instrument off of a breath like this, you'll hear a difference in the sound. You also hear a difference in your violin playing or your piano playing. If you breathe a couple of times, and then take the instrument and play, you'll probably feel your bowing differently or your left hand fingering differently. Well, it's interesting just watching you breathe even, and, and I know nobody can see this, but when I see you breathing and sort of demonstrating what you're describing, you seem lighter. Like I see you That's right. kind of lift up in, in, in a way that looks effortless and just, I don't know how else to describe it, just, you just look lighter, almost as if you could yeah. be floating. A little bit. And you can hear that in the sound, too. One of my favorite videos of a flute player playing on YouTube is Jean-Pierre Rompal playing Debussy Little Shepherd on The Muppet Show. If you look up Rompal Muppet Show, Debussy Little Shepherd, that's, that's one of the most beautiful recordings of his, of his flute. I like it so much better than like a concert recording. I'm sure you have that with violin records. I kind of don't love concert recordings of violin players because it's like in a hall and the hall has like all this resonance or something like that. I love when somebody's playing in like a television studio. If somebody has a great sound, you hear the direct sound. That's one of the best great sounds of Ron Paul. Although the 
the version of it they have up on YouTube is like the, sometimes they're not paying attention to the pitch level. So it's sort of like a quarter tone or two a half tone flat. But his sound is super amazing. And you can see, and like you're talking about the, if I'm having a conversation about you about breathing and I'm talking about ribs articulately opening up, then by having the conversation with you and saying, well, you know, they do this. And then if I'm speaking to you, you know, I'm speaking in my normal voice, but my normal voice has a kind of like flow to it. Whereas if I'm saying, hey, Noah, I've got something else to tell you. You know, you can hear like this kind of choke. And if I suspend myself, I don't love to use the word support. I like to use the word suspension because I feel like when my body feels like it's suspended and when the breathing is right, then everything feels more articulate. But you can see he's talking to a bird puppet at the beginning. He plays a great scale. Then the bird puppet says, boy, if you don't mind, I'd like to listen to you. I'd like to listen to you play while you rehearse. Is that okay? He says, what? Birds love flute music. And Ron Paul says, well, you know, flutists love birds too. And he's talking to this puppet that's down here. He's like, well, you know, Flutus loves birds too. And then he just picks his flute. He has his flute in his hands and then he takes a breath and he goes like, and plays. He looks like he's six feet taller. It's not because it's a deep breath. It's because he said, well, okay, I'm going to play for you. And then he sort of floats up towards the ceiling and it's like amazing. How does one cultivate that sort of breathing ability or like how does one practice that or how does one know if they're doing it right? And because I'm still curious about this idea of, of compression as opposed to volume or, you know, quality of air versus quantity. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering if this relates to, I don't remember if this is something we talked about earlier or if I just saw this in a video of yours, but this idea of, if I'm getting it right, breathing from low to high and blowing from high to low uh, and keeping yeah. things fresh and breathing from different places. And so all these things together, I don't know how they connect necessarily because I don't need to breathe in order to play the violin. Uh, so yeah, I wonder if you could expand on some of those things or tie those together in some way. I mean, it's a very standard thing for wind players to say, the diaphragm is the wind player's bow. We make bowing analogies all the time. So you say like, da, 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 and you want to feel like, you don't want to feel like you're doing like, you don't want to be sort of squishy with it. So people point to their stomachs and they say, well, you have to keep the support even and not bump the air. And it's like a bow. But the problem with that a little bit is that if you point to the stomach and you say you have to keep the air even from your stomach and then you tighten your stomach. Oh, I I shouldn't bump the air. Uh, now you start to choke on the air. I learned so much from Alexander Technique teachers, but I also learned when I was subbing in New York Philharmonic back in the early 80s, I had a great fortune to like talk breathing with Vince Penzarella, who was a trumpet player in the Philharmonic and who had studied breathing with famous breathing guru Arnold Jacobs, who was a tuba player in the Chicago Symphony. And Vince was the first person who told me about that breathing from low to high and blowing from high to low. That was an Arnold Jacobs thing. And Vince is the person who explained that to me. You could sing a note or you could, or a scale, but you could say, well, I'm going to imagine that when I'm taking a breath, 
that you could say there's a low component of breathing, but that as you inhale, you could feel like the air is coming into you, but there's a feeling that you're rising in order to draw the air into you. It's kind of an oppositional thing. You're not like going like, oh, I better breathe deeply. You have to rise in order to feel the air come down deep. And then you can see when I'm saying I'm breathing from low to high, if I take my hand and I raise my hand as I take the breath and I raise it over my head, obviously I don't have lungs that my lungs are here, but it really helps to include my head and the back, my neck, my mouth, the back of my sinuses. It really helps to imagine my lungs extend to above my head, not because I'm going to breathe like the, the hugest breath. And even if I took a light breath and I go like, if I want to play a phrase and, and not sound like, <clears throat> not sound like have a beautiful attack and stuff like that, come out of nowhere. If I raise my hand over my head and then play, the feeling is like I could sing one note and I could go like, I'm, it feels like I'm, I'm, my note is starting from the ceiling, and then as it progresses, it feels like it's being, I call it fresh, to keep the sound fresh. It feels like a note is being produced from a different place through each, that's what you guys have, is like, you have the same note, but it's like it's being produced from different parts of the bow. So I feel like there's a bowling analogy to be made about wind instruments. It's just that it's not like there's this like magic muscle down low of it's the bow. It's more like your body is the bow. Your stomach is like the frog of the bow. And then your head is like the tip of the bow. And then you're feeling like, oh, so that sounds a little bit like I went like this toward from the tip to the frog. And my favorite wind players, like I mentioned before, one of whom is Julius Baker, the former flutist of the principal flute of the New York Philharmonic. Every time I listen to a recording of him, he sounds like he's in touch with this. So it sounds like there's a really great recording of Bach Arioso from, you know, everybody plays that he plays that on a music minus one recording that sounds like it was recorded in a closet somewhere in midtown i mean like there's like no reverb perfect and his sound sounds totally like he's going like this like his bow changed direct sounds like he went to he shows power in the sound you can hear the 
power increasing in the sound in that way that a violin has power. And he he used terms, violin terms that um I feel like are so applicable to flute that it's nuts, you know, like retake. Uh, I like one of my students was taking lessons with him on a box and not in, and he was playing. He says, well, you know, you played a long phrase, you need breath, but it's more than a breath. The character of the breath is like retaking the bow. So like you have lots of stuff on wind playing. It's like, those aren't breaths like I need a breath. Those are those are breaths that are taken with the character of the music. And if you imagine your bow is lengthwise, I mean, that's the only thing that's a little off, but it's like you know, it's but the way the phrase has a way from the way you're breathing and from the way you're using the breathe from low to high, low from high to low, it has a way of developing naturally. There's like a kind of a natural phrasing thing that's like bow control. It's really easy, I think, easier under these circumstances to produce the right amount of air to get the flute to vibrate and not overload the flute with air. I feel like when you say, wow, I got to play loud here, uh, I feel I feel like you overload the flute with air when you do that stuff. And um, singing teachers who I admire say things that are similar. I think singing teaching changed to a certain extent over the last couple of decades because people started realizing people were throwing too much air at their vocal cords and that the so-called vibrant supported sound means actually using your, you're using breathing all right to open up your body, which gives you like a better supply of air. But unsung aspect of the good breathing is that the breathing actually allows you to keep the air out of the way of your vocal cords. It's like you have a gas tank. You don't want to flood the engine. There's only a tiny amount of fuel being fed into the engine. So it's like the fact that the gas tank has like a 25-gallon capacity doesn't mean you're going to like... (laughs) use five gallons a minute so i i love this one teacher i watched with singing he was saying like here's my philosophy what is breath support he says breath where is the support you know what italians call appoggio like where's the support he says the support is in the voice in the vocal cords he says what is the purpose of the breathing to keep the air out of the way of the vocal cords and only give them enough to vibrate sort of like there's already air in your flute the purpose of your air is to get the flute to vibrate well the purpose of the air you're using when you're singing is to is to help the vocal cords vibrate not to flood them his simple thing that he says is really great is like you have breath you take a breath and then when you sing he says sing on the breath not with the breath and i think that's a thing that happens tons people people think Ah, people do ah, and on on a flute they do that just a ton. So the air has like these sort of bumps because they associate register changes 
with more or less airless, more or less less air, more or less less air like that. So playing on the breath and not with the breath means like you're more or less keeping a constant air airspeed, but you're finding faster and smaller airspeeds with your lips or your vocal tract, like all these things in your vocal tract that can narrow and accelerate the air without you bumping it. You might already have explained this and my violin brain didn't pick up on it, but what happens if there's too much air, like if you're overblowing or whatever the, the correct term for that is? If there's too much air, it kind of makes it hard for you to shape the air with your lips. Like my wonderful teacher, Tom Knifinger at Yale said, use your lips to direct the air into the flute. Don't use your lips to hold the air back. Like if you've taken too much air in, you start to go like, <laughs> if I take less air in, when the air is gentler, I have more flexibility of where I aim the air. When I take more air in, then I start to like choke the air back with my lips or choke the air back with my muscles in my throat to, tr to try to play long in one breath or to try to not disturb this stuff. That's a big problem. So does it become like an intonation issue or a sound quality issue yeah. or, or the length of, of phrase? type Articulate, yeah. Articulation, oh. how long you can play a phrase. You can play a phrase really long off of very little air. If your body, you want me to play a note long on a flute? Should I do that? Yes, yeah, to illustrate would be awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so if I if I take, if I am too muscular with my breath and I take the biggest breath I possibly can, and you know when people say expand your ribs, if I'm like. Now I feel like I have a tiger in my tank and I feel like my sound is, I feel over muscular and I feel like I have to hold the air back. So when I play a phrase, I'm trying to make the air even, but I'm, I can't distribute it. If I raise my hand over my head, like I showed you like that, seems like a minor issue. And then I imagine, now I'm imagining that I'm singing the music and I'm watched. I raise my hand over my head. And as I sing my music, I, I lower my hand gradually. I finished from the floor. I started from the ceiling. If I play one note here, I'm playing that one note and I'm raising my hand over my head and I'm going to lower my hand gradually. of the emergency broadcast system. It's like, it's very stable in a way that I can't, that's unstable because my body's not working for me. So when I play the phrase, if I imagine that the notes are distributed from high to low, I raise my hand over my head.
And I imagine that those notes were distributed from high to low. That is such a simple thing. And I, I think I had people win auditions playing behind screens, putting their hands over their heads behind the screen and playing whatever excerpt. You know, you play long phrases, no rest. I feel like I need a breath after I play two bars. You raise your hand over your head. You play the same thing. Maybe you play a long beat. And then you get this feeling of poise in your sound. Then you raise your hand over your head. Then it's really easy to play a lot of bars. In fact, so easy to play a lot of bars. I'm raising my hand over my head and I'm hardly taking any air in at all. Hi, Noel. How's it going? Well, that wasn't bad either, right? It's really the way I'm distributing my, my attention that's doing it. I can also say, this is, a, this is a really large breath. That was a larger breath. That sounds good too. Whatever you want. But there is this kind of like, articulate feeling that's like um and it's also kind of relaxing i feel like for a violin player or a string player if you guys played like if you played that and you said oh, okay well this weird guy that i watched on this podcast said you know sing anything and raise your hand over your head and the, you, whatever. Then when you play, I'm not saying necessarily, although you might, you might take a breath that feels like you're breathing from low to high. And then you might feel like you're exhaling gently through your nose, but you feel like... You guys can breathe in while you're playing, you lucky, you know, so you could, you, but you could breathe from low to high. You could go like, you could change directions while you're playing, but you could feel like you're changing directions on this sort of like vertical axis, like I'm doing. This seems sort of magical to sort of observe and, and hopefully it comes across through audio and not just visually, but I want to try to wrap my mind around what is actually happening because physiologically it sounds like you're taking in an easier breath and it's not so much the volume of breath that you're that you're taking and it sounds like there's a, there's yeah. a mental component as well and what you said about distribution of attention made my ears perk up i mean is that kind of the the key to this or i just want to be able to yeah. make sure that that those listening especially if they're flutists or wind players that they feel like they have a tangible grasp on what exactly you're doing differently. Mr. Motto, my first fantastic teacher, said he didn't speak as verbosely about this stuff as I am. But he, but he said, 
when you play, he said, bring, even though the air is going through your lungs, he said, bring the air to your mouth and then play from your mouth. You know, and he made a sort of an upward gesture with his hand like this. So it's like, So it's, it's not bring the air to your stomach, play from your stomach. It's like bring the air to your... You hear the sort of wine glassy sort of thing? And you can play quite loud like that. It doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like a gusher of air going through the thing. So hopefully people understand a little bit of what I'm talking about. But I'm saying that when you're playing a stringed instrument, if you listen to us talk and you and you fool around with that, just you singing something, you know, off a breath like that, or even when you're stressed out sitting in a practice room or, or reading something, you could say, oh, well, I saw this weird guy talk about breathing from low to high. I'm breathing through my nose. I'm sort of making a... You can sort of hear my breath, right? But I'm feeling like... Then when you go back to your instrument, I love the term that Alexander teachers use. They, they say your body feels more organized. I feel like, you know, when you're slumping over your, not just slumping, but you could, you could say, well, I, I want to put quality time in with my instruments. So I'm going to have good posture. Then your back winds up going this. Then your fingers, you can hear it in my fingers. Like you guys can't see me, but I'm, I'm sitting up as if I'm watching a conductor in a pit and my back is kind of tightened up. And when I play a scale, you can hear all these little jumpy things happening. If I open up my back, my back is a little bit more rounded, and then I'm breathing. If my back is relaxed and I breathe from low to high, this is a light breath, but now I'm going to play my scale, and you'll hear my fingers. Hear that? That's from the breathing. And then you want to play. You want to play fast. Fast wrong breathing. This isn't even bad wrong breathing. It's just bracy. This is you know at length. It doesn't look like a big change, does it? But that's what makes this happen. have like complicated thirds or bad breathing my sound slightly cracky and my fingers sound jumpy good breathing you hear this like it sounds detailed 
And it does look different too. I mean, there's a sense right. of ease. I mean, from the moment you breathe differently, there's a sense of ease and, and lightness and effortlessness that you can just tell is coming. Yeah, you can, you can put people at ease when they're listening to you just by doing this. Before you even play, you, you're like, oh, you, you, you can play like, you can put people not at ease <laughs> by doing this. No, people aren't. But you can you can do this. Before you even play, that's like a kind of a thought experiment. Like you should have a master class, and you should say like, "We're not. Even, you're not even allowed to play. Breathe like this." And then watch the audience when you breathe like, and you'll see the audience, you'll breathe like you could raise your hand over your head. And you'll see the audience go like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm ready for this. Right? And then you could, you could like, put a tiger in your tank and like, breathe really deep, hold that air down and you could go like, and you'll feel the audience go like, uh oh. <laughs> it's very, it's very creaturey, you know. So like, I, I feel like when you get in touch with that, you can create different expectations depending upon how you use your breathing. So the breathing is wildly expressive. Is this something that you would practice away from the instrument, looking into a mirror? Or, or like, how would one start to yeah. become more comfortable or familiar with, with being able to, to breathe that way? I felt like I learned, like we were talking about the last time, I, I literally, by seeing... Jean-Pierre Rampal play a bunch of times. I thought I made up exercises that were based on what I saw him do because I saw like, wait a minute. <laughs> First time I saw him play a Mozart concerto, I always tell people I was hearing and he was standing and his flute was like, he was, he was holding his flute down around his waist. And it was like one bar before he was supposed to come in. And I thought like, he's not going to come in. Is he asleep? And then he was, the string section like, bum, 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 bum. they played like the four eighth notes before he came in. And he went like, he breathed as he picked the flute up in the course of like two beats. He went like, pick the flute up as he breathed. Sounded amazing and played this super long phrase. Like, if it was me, 10 bars before my entrance, I, I would be like fidgeting with my flute and try, trying to have the right position. But he just, and another time I saw him play, <clears throat> I saw him play <clears throat> amazing tonguing, amazing perfect sound. And it was the first piece he played in a recital. Did he tune to the, he played with harpsichord. Did he tune to the harpsichord? No. The audience applauded, and he, he came out, applause, applause, and he goes, and he, he just played this beautiful tonguing, really, really fast entrance with a perfect sound, with no test notes, no nothing. The effect on the audience was like the audience, the audience, like he goes, clap, 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 clap. You could feel the audience go, oh. You know, it's just this simple little sonata that Mozart wrote when he was like eight, supposedly. 
but it was just such a it was such a wild sound to hear the flute sound that perfect out of nowhere so 18 year old me 20 year old 19 something like that i i just thought like oh man i have to be able to do that so i would i would leave my flute out on a table and i would i would just walk by my flute do 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 I taught myself to pick the flute up and play immediately rather than play, you know, 45 minutes of long tones in order to get that sound. And when I saw a great musician playing other instruments who I admired, I thought they had this sort of amazing, great detachment from their instruments. They didn't look like they were strapping themselves into their instruments to play. So I, I learned to like, you see me breathing? I'm doing my breathing as as I'm picking the flute up. See this? I'm playing the Poulenc Sonata. Did I do this? Nope. I, I lifted the flute up. I tried to play with no hesitation. I tried. I tried to breathe with me picking the flute up. And I, I think that's just such an amazing thing. You can even do things like this. I bet you, you can do this in an audition. I bet you, you can go like, when, if you teach yourself to do that and you're playing like, you know, some long phrase like that, you could probably go, you could be counting. You could say, may we hear William tell? You see what I did? I breathed as I was picking the flute up and I sort of counted. Like that. I was counting and, and you could hear in my breathing, you could hear this. Um, then it sounds like the flute sound comes out of out of nowhere. So that's a kind of like detachment you have from the instrument. I, I feel like what happens a lot is people say, well, you know, you have to be like ready for anything. So being ready means there's a perfect position for holding your instrument. And then, okay, yeah. Then you're, you're building into your playing a kind of static position. That's what I love with string players so much. It's like you guys have, and pianists, but string players, it's like you guys have built in not static positions. You know, there's this spatial aspect to playing string instruments that's so good. And I think there's a I think there's a weirdly spatial aspect to playing a, even these instruments that have buttons on them. You know, like it looks like, wow, you don't have to worry about shifting or anything like that. You just use the button. But actually, actually, if you watch my hands. My hands have a sort of like like choreography to them as I'm playing. One thing of one great violin player I know told me was I, I think her teacher was Oscar Shumsky or somebody, you know him? Mm-hmm. But he was saying like, you know, but you think, well, here's the violin, here's the bow and I'm bowing the violin. This is up bow and this is down bow. But there's an aspect to violin playing that's like you're down bowing and then the violin could be going away as you down bow and then you're up bowing and the up violin could be coming towards you. Right. 
So you're bowing partially with the violin against the bow, not the bow against the violin. And I, I think on a flute, I would say flute's more related to violin than you would imagine, wouldn't you say? How would that be? Hmm, what? My right hand looks very distinctly like a bow arm, doesn't it? And then I actually think the flute, there's a way, the way the things you want to do with your air or the things you want to do with your lips. You see, you see me pulling the flute. You can see my lip changing. So am I moving my lips? Not really. I'm moving my lips with my flute. See, my, my flute is, doing, is kind of pulling my lip across my face. You could say that that's some sort of embouchure control, but I'm actually controlling, there's an aspect of controlling my embouchure that I'm controlling my embouchure with the flute itself, not simply embouchure method. You know, in a way, it sounds like, I mean, even with this question of how to practice breathing, it sounds like a lot of it comes back to what we started talking about, which is observing and trying to emulate yeah. and, and really borrowing and stealing aspects of skills that other people are doing and being more keenly aware. Therefore, as we try to emulate what we are doing and what results we're getting and how it feels and so forth. And and yeah, I mean, nowadays with with everything that's available on YouTube. With the amount of video. I mean, I felt super lucky that I got to see Ron Paul play like, I don't know how many times because he was playing tons of concerts. And I went to every one I could. But once I started to be able to buy a video cassette of him playing and then I could see him on video, I was like, oh my God, I don't know whether I would. Many things that I'm showing, that I'm talking about, I didn't learn that from my, I have wonderful teachers. But even then, I think what I learned from my teacher, I think what I learned from my fingers so much was that he had a huge record collection and he was very observant about what he heard on recording. And he would imitate people so beautifully on the flute. And uh, I think he taught me how to hear music and how to, how to emulate people. So I think that's what I'm trying to do 2022 style with all this video information i feel like people hear recordings or they watch people play but they don't necessarily pick up you know i feel like i can help them observe my so-called techniques are their techniques but they're kind of observation of what people do and once you start fitting the pieces together you say whoa you know this person's doing this with a flute, but this person's also doing that, a similar thing with a violin. And this person's doing that with a piano. His hands are going into the piano, but his back is opening up way like that. And then you might like a different type of sound than another person, that's great. But just to have the idea that you, by observation, can create your own understanding of technique. You can get the full transcript of this week's chat, plus links to various things that came up in conversation at bulletproofmusician.com slash blog.